Today's Glop podcast is brought to you by Donors Trust. Do you have a plan in place to make sure your end-of-year charitable giving gets done easily and in alignment with your values? Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you can simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits. Donor-advised funds are the fastest-growing charitable tool in the country, letting you move beyond simple checkbook giving without the outrageous expense and complexity of a private foundation. But Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet to get your free no-commitment prospectus. You'll learn how a donor advises and how it can simplify your giving, save you in taxes, and protect your giving in new ways. You'll also receive bonus content to help you be more strategic in your giving. If you believe in using charity to promote liberty, then you owe it to yourself to look at Donors Trust. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet right now to download a free copy of your helpful guide. There's no commitment. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. In the past few weeks, through our national hotline, we have collected hundreds of names of suspected terrorists, and I'm proud to say that most of these calls have come from high school and college students nationwide. (laughs) In fact, we received over 475 calls alone regarding this man. My balls is Harry. (laughs) We also received calls regarding such nefarious terrorists as Grabber Booby <laughs> and Haida Salami. And let this be a message to you, Haida Salami. We will not play your dangerous game. The Glop Podcast is also brought to you by Harry's Shave. Guys are impossible to shop for. Harry's makes it simple with premium razors at a great price. Go to harrys.com right now to get a holiday shave set. And don't forget to enter the coupon code GLOP at checkout for $5 off. That's harrys.com, coupon code GLOP. And by WordPress. More bloggers use WordPress than any other platform. And now, for the first time ever, WordPress.com offers you your own .blog domain. Hurry to WordPress.com now and use promo code PODCAST for 15% off your custom .blog domain and buy Casper mattresses. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash GLOP and using GLOP as your promo code at checkout. And yes, this is the holiday, pre-holiday GLOP culture podcast. I'm with me as always somewhere else. In or- I'm, where am I? I'm in Manhattan today. I'm in well, I'm in Manhattan for the next hour and maybe ten minutes, and then I'll be either in some kind of conveyance, either Long Island Railroad or maybe even today in Uber since it's the holidays, out to Long Island, way out in Long Island, to go to work for a few hours today. So it's yes, the last no. day before the break. I think it's important to note that Rob, like his yes. namesake, Rob Petri. Yes. Of the Dick Van Dyke Show. Of oh, the Dick Van Dyke is Show, a, yes. Is a TV worker around New York. But the difference is that Rob came in from New Rochelle on the train. Rob, to Rob. 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 Black and white Petri. TV. Fake Rob. Fake well, not, Rob. Fake Rob doesn't make it any clearer, does it? Uh, fictitious <laughs> Rob. Wait. No, fictitious. Right. Is it fictitious Rob. Wait, are we the only two on this on this call? Wait a minute. Yeah, where is Jonah? I'm here. Jonah Goldberg. Jonah Goldberg. Jonah has views. 
Jonah has views on the Dick Van Dyke show. I was just going to say that Rob Petrie came in on the train right. to New York to work at the Alan Brady show, where right. takes a train from Manhattan. Yes. I said that you know, faster. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, uh, yeah. I thought you were going to do then a Jonah, like his namesake is Jonah the prophet is like in the wilderness or something, but you just draw, you lost the parallelism. Well, Jonah, the literally inside a whale, Jonah, the prophet, yeah. Inside a whale inside the swamp that is going to be drained. I am in the veritable modern day Nineveh. (laughs) Wow. Um, (laughs) It is a modern day Nineveh with a really fantastic hotel at 11th and Pennsylvania. Just magnificent. Apparently it is. You wouldn't believe how beautiful it is. Um, so, hey, quick, quick question, since we're on, you know, Dick Van Dyke show, and it may not come back more than three or four more times this episode. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe something equally contemporary. I, I really want know. you guys to talk about Bewitched again, because that's really where, I think that's that's where the value at this Bombay podcast. died. Dr. Bombay, the uh, doctor. Yeah, but he, <laughs> yes, Jonah, yes, yeah. Jonah, what were you going to say? Um, Bernard uh, Fox. The other night, uh... Uh, we actually were watching normal television, and the Dick Van Dyke show was on for an hour in primetime on CBS. Is that a thing now? What? No, because they, they colorized it. Yeah, okay. Is that a they, thing they now? They did this painstaking colorization process, and they had two episodes on on Sunday night. And, and that was the whole justification for it? Is it going to be – because, you know, my daughter really liked it, and, like, in terms of, like, safe – TV watching with their family, you can really not do you know much better. No, no, it's that's a great show. It's a really great show. Yeah, I um, like, so once again we're talking about television from. I from think they should literally sixty years ago. I think they should take more color shows and make them black and white, and see what what happens. Actually, Walking Dead does do that. But do you know than, that you um, can do that? You can easily yeah. do that because well, the old ones are. I mean, most of them are on film, so it's not that hard, um, and they would still kind of look good. And actually, actually, no, the truth is, the digital ones you can do anything with. And also, and since it, this, there are people who have been, who were buoyed by this election, who would very much welcome the decolorizing of America. <laughs> well, that's quite uh, that's quite the thing to say. I would like to point well, out it's what that they see know. anyway. So why not? <laughs> everything, um, like, yeah. everything. Mad yeah. Max, Mad Max Fury Road, which was you know this extraordinary movie released last year, was in fact released on DVD in a black and white version. I could see that. That, it's, eh. that uh, George Miller, its director, apparently it's, thinks it's pretty amazing looking. I haven't seen. If you go to any movie set, I mean, for years, any movie set, even now, there's a there's the cinematographer, or the director, or the director of photography. We used to call him the DP, and that person is extraordinarily uh, gifted. That's usually the only true has has been for a long time the only true artist on the set. I mean, you know, everyone else, you know, prances around as if there's something important. But the DP actually, in the old days, was a uh, a brilliant photographer could create those, you know, the whole look of the Godfather was a, that's the director of photography. That's the cinematographer. Um, and then they sort of morphed into digital uh, painters, you know, and with digitally they, they figured out how to do it and how to create all the kind of source lighting you want and how to make things look really great. There is a whole new way of thinking about all this stuff, which that, which people don't even refer to it as filming anymore. They say just refer to it as capture because it's digital, so you're not really filming anything, and all you're trying to do is capture as much information as you can about the scene. So in order to do that, everything should be lit, not like the way it really is in life or not in a mood, but lit 
like the surface of the sun. So you can see everything. So everything's captured. And then later in the computer, uh. you change the lighting. And I think it's, it's one of those things that I believe actually someone told me is more would be more efficient and cheaper and better to do that way. But it would be it would be crushing a crushing change for everyone on the movie set to suddenly realize that uh, it doesn't matter what it looks like because we can make it look like anything. Um, so there, there's the death of art right there. But on the other hand, there's it's another there'll, there'll be another artist sitting behind a, a sitting in a chair looking at a monitor saying, you want to look like the Godfather? Boom. Here's what it looks well, like. Well, who, uh, who, who here has seen uh, Rogue One, the Star Wars movie? I have not. I'm hopefully seeing it today. So careful. Okay. Well, uh, so I'm not going to spoil it except to say that, you know, there, there is this, there are these uh, two moments in the movie where uh, they do what was done in the, I think the recent Captain America movie where, um, where, Robert Downey Jr. is regressed 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Digitally, and he like looks like he's 18 or 19 years old, and he's acting the scene, but his face has been regressed, and it's you know one of the most astounding things you've ever seen. And there are two such moments in Rogue One, and it is both sort of like it gives you a sense of all the possibility of 21st century cinema and all the horror of it at the same time. Yeah. You know, that we are now moving away, even though all movies and all TV shows and everything are totally manipulated environments in which nothing real happens except for interactions between people. But now, you know, you're really talking about whatever you're going to see in front of you. You're not actually going to know really whether it actually happened. So they got Jabba the Hutt to look like 30 years younger? Yeah, it's amazing. amazing. Wow, Wow, that's hard. yeah. You know, well, he, to be fair, also, Job has had so much work done. I mean, doing years. Yeah. He speaking, looks almost like Carrie Fisher at this point. Speaking, speaking <laughs> of that, so John Goodman pops up on SNL on Saturday sure. night in sure. a playing Rex Tillerson in a sketch, and he is half his, his the size he was two or three years ago. It's like he looks the way he did when he played the coach in Revenge of the Nerds. 32, 33 years ago. It's yeah, he, kind of staggering. Well, so so let me ask you this. Um, and and that's not a special little, effect. Well, uh, no, it's not a special effect. He actually lost the weight. <clears throat> and apparently he's much healthier from people uh, uh, I know who know him. Uh, I saw him on stage uh, in, in uh, the front page here. You know, great old play, the front page. And they've mounted a, did you say they mounted a, a revival? What do you say about the play? Yeah, they mounted a revival on they the boards. They mounted a revival. On the uh, Rialto boards. On the Rialto boards. And it's no good. It's just not good. It has no snap. It has no fire. It has nothing. Except Nathan Lane in like the second act. And he's come kind of almost saves the whole experience, but doesn't quite. Um, mostly because I believe Nathan Lane directed himself in that. And he's just doing his own thing. And the directing is terrible. Um and John Goodman's in it, and John Goodman's actually in one of the is, is in one of the roles that's supposed to be the the guy. You know, all these old plays have the same kind of structure where you set up a situation, everybody's kind of normal, but heightened normal, and then in walks crazy, and crazy walks in, and then doesn't exit, and then comes back in on the third act and doesn't exit, and the whole idea is that this kind of gives a little turbocharge to the <clears throat> to the proceedings. And that's John Goodman's role, one of his one of his roles there, and um, 
and he's just not that good. He's just not that funny. He's not that interesting. He's, he's not. It's it's a bad flat, like one note performance, which you would not expect from John Goodman. And there is a possible interpretation, which I have you know make, which is that when people who who have a thing get get healthy, or or stop being the thing they are, or lose weight or whatever, then they're not funny anymore. And, and um, uh-huh. uh, you know, it was like I had a friend, really right. brilliant writer friend who just was fantastic. And he was helping us out once on a pilot rewrite. And uh, he came and saw the run through and came back to the room. And, and then we were doing the rewrite. And he was just was not funny. He was pitching jokes that weren't that interesting and weren't that good and just terrible. And um, yeah, it's because uh, he lost I, weight. Well, the no, ultimate this, story of that this is, is on Paxil. He 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 was oh. having anxieties. And he was on. He was he was he was happy for the first time in his life. Put it that way. And yeah, well, it's not funny. Well, Sid Caesar is the ultimate example of that. Like Sid Caesar, who was this big, you know, bluff, six foot two, you know, bulvan of a man, and then ten years after, you know, fifteen years after his heyday, comes back and he's kind of shrunken. You know, he's sort of skinny and and scrawny. I don't know exactly how he did it to himself, and he was not funny. So there is something, though it does fit in with the homeland theory that, you know, what you really need to have superpowers as a spy is to be bipolar and get off your meds. The only way to, to solve the problem of, of Islamic terror yeah. is to take bipolar people, take them off their meds, Give them a wall to put a lot of pictures up with a lot of strings attached. But that is a metaphor to another. That is in fact a metaphor. Yeah, the idea for Donald Trump. Well, that or that that what we all need to do in the West is get off the meds, (laughs) stop it with the thing when they give therapy and the meds and the poor me and get to work. Um, But I, I, you, this is like this is an old. (laughs) Theory, right about <laughs> fat guys not being funny when they lose their when they lose the weight, right? I mean, people said yeah. that about Drew Carey, yeah. um, and well, did, but there's there, wasn't there somebody else? I'm trying to Jonah remember. Hill, Jonah Hill, yeah. Um, I think part of it is that when they lose the weight, they all of a sudden want to be seen as as not the funny sidekick character guy, but like someone who's like desirable and they're they never lose so much weight that they actually become incredibly handsome too and it just the chemistry gets weird but i don't know yeah or just like the the, the i mean you know, there's another possibility and i i am fully aware this is not science but that uh, fat makes you funny All well that's not true in my funny. case <laughs> so yeah, I, don't lose the weight. Otherwise, you'll like you won't be funny anymore. Did you guys see that movie? Not that I'm very funny today, but or don't way. go on, you know, don't go on Paxil, or don't, don't, you know, you are what you are. If you're in show business, then you gotta, you know, half it's this magical mystery personality. Just stay that, do that. Did you guys see that movie, uh, The Nice Guys? Yeah, yeah. That's Ryan Gosling and, and Russell Crowe's cop. Yeah, so 50s. I rented it um, for a flight, you know, a couple week, couple months ago. And I was I was into it for a good twelve minutes before I realized that John Goodman wasn't in the movie because I was convinced that Russell Crowe on the cover was John Goodman. Wow! And I, I never looked at it closely, and and then all of a sudden, I was like, oh my gosh, that, what's happened to Gladiator? Um, yeah, but uh, boy, yeah. boy, that's a he's bad at that movie. period. He's at a period in his career where no one he he. 
no one's talking about the fact that he's gained 50 pounds. Because <laughs> if, if he gained 10 more, then it's like, okay, now we got to talk about how fat Russell Crowe is. But since he's just in that weird zone, we're like, well, you know, I mean, I know. We'll, we'll make sure he always buttons his jacket, you know, in every scene. <laughs> and we got to shoot him like, like okay, you know, maybe from up top, like, you know, just give him a little stretch there on the neck. You don't want to, your photograph above, you always look good. There's a lot of that. No close-ups. But but no one's really saying it because it's like just a little bit, just a little bit. But then I'm everybody defend... on that set, when they watch him like tuck into the craft services and eat another bacon egg cheese sandwich, just like, man, come on. We're all working I want to defend Russell Crowe because despite the fact that it's an extraordinarily flawed movie with a lot of ridiculous stuff in it, his performance as Noah in the Darren Aronofsky movie Noah was just staggeringly good and you know when he when he pulls it together which he didn't in the nice guys and sort of focuses and he is you know one of the best people ever to hit the screen so i'm just defending him no because it's the holiday season right they rewrote that movie though so that noah was only going to save the delicious animals Uh, Only the animals oh that can be God. covered with cheese. Okay, well, Red you know, cakes. I think in I think in a in a desperate effort to reset <laughs> reset this show, which seems to be going nowhere fast, we're going to do the first spot and then well, come back and be focused. Elegant, elegant show business segue. Yes, and the segue <laughs> is, is to our lot. dear friends at Harry's Shave. Guys can be hard to shop for, as you know. But Harry's is the perfect gift. I mean, how do you find something for the man who has everything? And even if he has everything, he's already gotten 45 golf balls in the last two Christmases. So I would say you got to go with Harry's shave. Why? Because it's the best razor on the market. Started by two best friends, Jeff and Andy. Fed up with being overcharged for razors. They started their own razor company to give people what they deserve, a great shave at a fair price. This holiday, Harry's has ready-to-gift shave sets at all different price points, starting at just 15 bucks. Come with a razor handle of your choice, shaving cream, replacement blades, and a travel cover. Their Winston set includes an engravable chrome handle if you want to add a personalized touch. As a special offer for fans of Glop, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off your order when you enter coupon code GLOP at, at checkout. So... Go to harrys.com right now to get a holiday shave set. Don't forget to enter code GLOP at checkout for $5 off. That's harrys.com. Use code GLOP, and we thank Harry Shave for sponsoring the GLOP podcast. Now, gentlemen, with the most serious issue of the transition, I want to, I, I need you to reflect on this fact. Have there ever been two better names for senior appointments to the government than Rex Tillerson and Vinnie Viola. <laughs> imagine the meeting. Imagine the meeting at the White House where Secretary of the Army Vinnie Viola has to have a conversation with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. I mean, you have like one is like yeah. the name of a DC Comics superhero before he turns into you know Captain Avenger, and the other is like part of the the villain chin the chin gigante gang you know at the the ravenite social club i think rex tillerson sounds like you know the name of the guy who was shot just before liberty valance 
You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, he's got that. I, I showed John this. John and I had, uh, we're swanning around Manhattan together and we had breakfast last week. And, uh, um, oh, using, and my invitation was. Uh, where you were, in, you, were, you were in Hicksville. Should I check my paperless post? <laughs> anyway, I showed I showed John this um, already, but somebody on Twitter had this great thing where they had like three just sort of random pictures of Rex Tillerson, and he said, "Why is it that Rex Tillerson always looks like someone just whispered in his ear that Jason Bourne has surfaced again in Prague?" <laughs> I can't look at him <laughs> any, oh, any so other good. way. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like, you know, one of the old Justice League cartoons. Like, Meanwhile, 4,000 miles above the Earth. Uh, it does seem like uh, he is that square-jawed Rex, Commissioner Rex Tillerson. Yeah. Um, or he's Rex like the, Tiller, he's yeah. the guy. He's he should be the one lighting the bat signal. Yes, right. Or... Alternatively, in a sort of a slightly less uh, superhero universe, he is the guy that she is going to get married to until the hero guy, yes, you know, does his grand gesture and overcomes whatever the fear obstacle is that he had to get the girl back. Oh, I love Rex. Are you Rex, kidding me? I'm sorry. Rex, 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 I'm Till- so yeah. sorry. <laughs> Rex, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't. So sorry, well, but I, there's a there's a really really cute bridesmaid that you can make eye contact with in the last scene. Yeah, so the, that will suggest said. you're going to be just all right, even though I'm 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 running off with yeah. Billy Crystal or Tom Hanks. Or Tom Hanks, yeah, Tom Hanks. Right. So, you know, we right. so Rex, so Rex Tillerson. Uh, I have, you know, I, I do not actually have an opinion on the nomination of Rex Tillerson, except that. You know, absent any real reason to deny anyone a cabinet post when the president-elect wishes it, any really serious substantive reason, the president-elect should get what he wants. But I really do wish that he gets the position and and acts like a Rex Tillerson. <laughs> yeah, if we're going to really do it, do it. Yeah, You have to fill the shoes that your name you know, that your name suggests you, you know, you, 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 it's just very, very important. It'd be awesome if like at the beginning of every staff meeting, everyone gets around the table and Tillerson just takes out his old Colt 45 and lays it on the oak table. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And how about Vinnie Viola, the secretary of the army? So they're having some conversation about the deployment of various resources at the Pentagon. And Vinnie Viola, secretary of the army, looks over at whoever the secretary of the Navy is and says... Now, look, here's what I can do for you. No, I think it's more like Vinny would look over and say, uh, it's a nice uh, nice Navy you got there, nice boats. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty boats. They float in the water and everything. be a shame if something happened to one of them. <laughs> I think for the Army-Navy game that the, uh, the yeah. commandant of the Naval Academy is going to wake up with the head of his favorite mascot in his bed. <laughs> right. It's the only, an only football game in which there are, you know, <laughs> broken legs <laughs> from the sidelines <laughs> where guys just get suddenly you know the guys playing for Navy suddenly get sick yeah I don't feel so good right now coach uh, don't feel so good I don't think I can go out there and play uh, now listen this is all, this is all, listen, these are all funny listen. gags because Colonel Smith Colonel Smith only had got to Fort Leavenworth 
because the Rosado brothers guaranteed his security. Wait, <laughs> wait, you're still doing Vinnie Viola jokes? I can't help it. I can't help it. <laughs> I, for one, stop. don't like trafficking in these kinds of ethnic stereotypes. <laughs> exactly, you got to stop. Uh, but don't you? I mean, uh, part of me feels like for this that 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 we're are we just whistling past the graveyard? Is this just the we're making jokes because like it's the end of like that the scene in Downfall where they uh, the, the Hitler movie where they go through the, the the ballroom and everybody's just drinking champagne and having a great time and kind of living in this crazy end of the world uh, denial or are we is it that we gen- or I should say I genuinely think that some of these picks are good that's I'm thrilled like that's sure Rex absolutely Wilson, absolutely like, some a, of these a guy who can manage and run and affect change in a large organization like Exxon Mobil. I mean, I would have put him, I mean, I, I'm glad he's at state. I mean, his first job, as far as I'm concerned, is not to deal with foreign affairs, but to deal with these horrible departments and they're, they're chock full of uh, robotic leftists that they all need to be cleaned out. I mean, that's the swamp that needs to be drained, it seems to me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm disappointed in Jeff Sessions because as, as a pick for a lot of reasons, but especially because I don't think he has any experience administering change to a large bureaucracy. That's which is what justice desperately needs more than anything. I mean, I would put a giant, you know, a restraining order on any movement from the Department of Justice on anything until uh, two thirds of its career lawyers and meddlesome liberals who are burrowed in are rooted out and turfed out and sent, you know, well, I mean, old. if we're going to get all serious about this, I mean, I think the problem just from, we'll get, we're going to get back to crude racial stereotypes <laughs> of Italians any second now. <laughs> um, Listen, uh, I've been trafficking crude racial stereotypes of Jews in my own Jewish magazine for years. So I feel that <laughs> I have a pass on this. But go ahead, please. Um, but, yeah, me too. I feel that way too about me. Go but, ahead. but speaking of passes and not passes on these kinds of things, I think that's part of the problem that, that Sessions has is that um, the bureaucracy that most needs to be, let's just say, refor- vigorously reformed at justice is the Civil Rights Division, which is just a horror show of sort of bureaucrats undermining you know, Republican administrations and playing their own activist games. Um but Sessions, is Sessions the guy to do that? He's got this, I think, largely unfair baggage about race stuff. And is he really the guy who's then going to go in and clean up, you know, clean out the Civil Rights Division? I, 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 that's, that's a tough move for him. Yeah. Um, but and I think he's being good in general. I mean, the argument against Tillerson as the, you know, swamp drainer at Foggy Bottom is that while he has, you know, remarkable corporate experience he's never worked in washington and the means you know and he doesn't know foggy bottom which has its own rules and systems and he doesn't know how the bureaucracy can block him and how to work around that the way say george schultz did when he was reagan secretary of state having been secretary of labor and having been a sort of senior official and learned how government worked and you know worked in the white house and all of that Schultz actually had to manage the bureaucracy, which was utterly hostile to the interests and ideas of the president of the United States, that Schultz himself gradually came to believe, you know, was a transformational figure and knew that he had to make sure that the building, as people call it, the the, the building was not 
actively working against the interests of the president. And it may be that Tillerson knows how to run ExxonMobil, which is, you know, the second largest company in the world or something like that. Um, but he may not know how to run, how to manage the State Department. Now, whatever, you know, I mean, just because he just he, he can get Bolton as his number two and Bolton's worked there, you know, for 10 years under under three different administrations. So Bolton could help or, you know, someone else could help. But it's a it's an interesting challenge. Um, for somebody to come into Washington fresh and yeah. have to be that kind of countercultural figure that you're talking about. It's one thing if he comes in and the bureaucracy is like, I love you. You're great. What can oh, we thank do God help? you're here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So let, let, let's do it this way. Who do we think sur- does not survive confirmation process? Uh, well, I, I don't think we know that yet because, you know, it's always, it's always like a thing that comes up that yeah, you need cover. A thing. No, you know what I mean? Like there's a news story about how someone went through a bad divorce and this this yeah. accusation was raised and then it gives cover. All they need is three Republicans, right, to vote against. It's, right, it's got to be somebody I think to, to even be entered into finding that thing. It's usually somebody that, that's already got a target on their back. Well, that's the, so that's the question. I, I, I agree that, yeah, there's someone's, someone could have a skeleton that shakes things up. But given the given the fact that we know the Democrats are going to want at least one scalp, right? Yeah. Probably two, um, or they go for at least two scalps. Whether they get to, who knows? And um, given that you know uh, the Republicans are probably prepared to give at least one scalp, um, I I guess, and this is a purely a guess, barring the you know someone found a you know, a fully, fully grown gimp in a leather onesie in someone's closet. Right. Um, I think that, uh, um, Ben Carson decides to drop out because the Democrats are going to ask him perfectly legitimate, but difficult questions about stuff that he hasn't done his homework on and doesn't know the answer to. And it's going to embarrass him. Um, and I also think that the guy who has the biggest chance of blowing up at the confirmation hearings, confirmation hearings are uh, this Mnuchin guy. I, have, right. I think I think Tillerson's a great pick, and he'll do his homework. I think obviously Mattis will get through. Kelly is a great pick. Um, Pruitt, I I think is a great pick, but he'll have a real hard time and all that. But Mnuchin, no, but they but they need something on Pruitt. Pruitt is going to be a very impressive confirmation nominee in other words at the hearings and stuff he knows you know he knows, he knows this better than yeah. any senator does and he and he is a reasonable person and a very articulate person and unless they have something else on him that's what i mean like it, right. you've got to give republicans they need three republicans to vote against they've got to give them a reason to run right. away from him and i think and not means- not to give trump his head now this by the way it could also be that this will happen at the secondary level at the undersecretary level or the assistant secretary level, that when they if they don't have the goods or they don't really have great stuff on, aside from mm-hmm. Carson, I think you're 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 right about, you know they'll they'll hold their fire and and like blow somebody up who is supposed to be the number two guy <laughs> at at labor or at commerce. How unsatisfying that's going to be. No, because the, because he'll be you know I mean there were versions of this in the you know he'll be James Watt or he'll be. He'll be a version of something EPA where guy, I think whoever the EPA guy is, I think it's 
Because um, it'll all just be right. Well, and then there's uh, and then there's uh, Pudzer, the 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 Carl's Jr. guy who. You know, I mean, again, like I think they think that they can make hay. Some of this question is about whether whether the Democrats understand that you know what they think and what the public thinks are two different things. So if they they think they can make hay on this guy because he's against the minimum wage, then you could have a situation in which uh, he's against the minimum wage intelligently. So you know, he's right. not just like, "Why are you paying all these people? They stink." You know, I mean, he 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 knows the arguments. He's like an AI board member. He he's not a, you know, he's not like some kind of thug who doesn't like these things. And you know, they can they can backfire when they treat people like you know when they treat people like they're stupid and and that they're going to be stupid and, and and unimpressive. But who knows? And yeah. but I will say we have a new uh, sponsor. Um, we're excited to have uh, WordPress, which, as it happens, is the platform on which CommentaryMagazine.com sits. So I'm very familiar with WordPress, uh, and I'm excited to have them sponsoring us. This podcast is the perfect home for our stories, and a WordPress.com blog can be the perfect home for yours, with brand new .blog domains now available. WordPress.com is the easiest way to start your website and share your passions with the world. That's why more bloggers use WordPress than any other platform. Go to WordPress.com now and use promo code PODCAST for 15% off your custom .blog domain. But hurry, before that perfect domain name is taken. That's promo code PODCAST for 15% off at WordPress.com. Use the same publishing software that commentary, that ricochet, and soon National Review use, that's WordPress. We thank WordPress for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Now, as we are at the end of the year, oh, Rob, can I just say one thing? You said, like, are we just sort of yeah. dancing the precipice because well, the not really. it's coming not to precipice. an end and all but that? More like just like having fun, you know, like, well, you know, who knows what happens. I, I think a lot of it is that we are kind of, you know, vamping because nothing's really happening. So people. Right. In general, you know, the people who are supposed to talk about stuff happening don't have anything to say. Well, let me let me ask you this. So we see all of these post-election efforts to, you know, delegitimize the Trump election are failing, right? There was the recounts, which then ended up with Trump having more votes in Wisconsin, and the Electoral College meeting, which ended up with more people voting, more electors being faithless to Hillary than to Trump, yeah. by a margin of five to two. Which was awesome. Which was awesome, although nerve-wracking, because we've now, some somehow this whole thing has now regularized the idea that electors can, imagine that it was a 272 to 260, whatever, you know, to 268 election. Seven electors faithless would have, you know, changed the results of the election. So this is a little yeah. nerve wracking. I always love around. the phrase "faithless elector." I just love it is. That. It is the it's only. Great. It's like one of those things where disgruntled only ever refers to an ex-employee, and faithless only refers to electors. What in what in what kind? Well, and the faculty the adjective. <laughs> yes, but I mean, literally, there is no other term. There is no other word that is always modified by the adjective faithless. Just as I don't think disgruntled is ever used except with ex-employee who goes up and then shoots up the workplace. Work so, 
Uh, and so, but there's also the irony that the that the, one of the faithless electors actually voted for Faith Spotted Eagle, which is just like the, <laughs> the greatest <laughs> name ever. Right. Um, um, that's not. Uh, that sounds like Faith Spotted Eagle sounds like Rex Tillerson's you know uh, sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they ride around. So Rex Tillerson is actually the name of the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger has a very insane <laughs> name. Yeah. No, I think John his name Smith. is John Reed. Something like that, yeah. But what if his name were Rex Tillerson? Well, I wouldn't or wouldn't the world be better if we had disgruntled electors and uh, faithless employees? Ah, faithless, a faithless ex employee came and just gave a tongue lashing to the HR department for five minutes with a disgruntled electors. Man, that that is that's some convention right there. Well, I also want to bring back, you know, more of the, you know, I want to bring back gruntled and ert. You know, I mean, like some of these, why, why or we need? I, I have been on a one man mission for years to use feck in sentences. You know, because as opposed to feckless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if it's, if, if you're if you you have to have feck. If you yeah. if there's fecklessness exists, there must be feck as a. If we could only get that true. If if we could get the labor force more gruntled, they would have more feck at their job. <laughs> yeah, and be have and, fewer, fewer, and and, and and be more ert. I I I, we, I of, who could disagree with that. <laughs> really, I don't think anyone could disagree. But I, I did want to say this, which is all of these efforts to delegitimize post-election. So the question is, are are liberals and the left, are they like spinning off into crazy town or are they softening the turf? That is to say, during 2003, 2004, a lot of us thought that the sort of, you know, crazy leftist attacks on George W. Bush we're backfiring against them, and you know Soros spent thirty million dollars for no purpose, and all of that, and they were just you know this whole thing about how Bush knew, and you know these conspiracy theories, and yet right. when Iraq went wrong, and when Katrina happened, and a couple of other things, I think that all of that stuff softened the ground so that when things turned against Bush, they turned against him very hard, very fast, and. Republicans right. as well as Democrats. And and so the question is if are maybe these delegitimation efforts are smart because they will because if Trump missteps or mishandles things or does things badly, they will have established the predicate that he is, you know Well, I don't know. I mean I, I think that's a, that's a, I don't I don't I don't really agree with that comparison. Uh, George W. Bush entered office in trouble. I mean he he barely won. Um, very, you know, however you however you come come down on it, the, the coin landed on its side, so he didn't have a mandate to do much. And then nine eleven happened, which could have re could have artificially inflated his popularity. And then he went on a high wire act, which is an invasion of another country, two countries. So he was already sort of standing on the precipice. I, I think he, I, I don't think there was a chance that if if any of those things had gone sour, that there would be sort of a groundswell of he'd have a groundswell of popularity. And I think in many ways. Trump is in a much better shape because he's he won more decisively than George W. Bush. Right. Although I'm just saying that I'm saying that it doesn't really matter whether he won decisively or not. It's more a, a matter of sort of public impression that Hillary got 
2.8 million more votes than he did. And, you know, he's the most unpopular person. You know, his popularity right now is at 40%. Makes him the most unpopular person ever to sort of like, as he enters office. And there was all this stuff about how, you know, every single business transaction that is ever entered into by the Trump organization after he is president, you know, creates the ambiguous impression of possible bribery and all of that. I'm just saying, like, is this is the is the left's relentless effort to say that he, you know, he is an illegitimate person as president. Is that smart or is it going to backfire? I think it all depends on how he does as president. I mean, I think it's it's impossible to know at this point. I think some people are doing it for smart reasons. A lot of people are doing it for insane, irrational, hysterical reasons, which brings me to my brief rant. Um, so I wrote this G-File. I wrote this strange newsletter thing for people who don't know. And, um, uh, and I wrote that what was patently obvious to basically every never-Trumper I've ever met at one of our clandestine meetings in the catacombs, which is that never Trump is over, right? It's and that because the the whole never Trump thing, which was really just a hashtag slogan for a disparate group of people who were fundamentally opposed to Donald Trump being the leader of the Republican Party and the, never mind the leader of the free world, um, said that, that we weren't going to endorse him or we weren't going to vote for him and that we we're going to try and find some solution in the primaries and then in the general election. But the guy won the election, and basically every never-Trumper I know has the same more or less position I do, which is we're delighted that Hillary lost, but there's nothing for never-Trump to do. We're not going to say that the Democrat, that the, a constitutionally valid election is illegitimate, and so our attitude is wait and see. See how he does. Hope it works out best for the country and for the Republican Party. Be skeptical, hold his feet to the fire, disagree with him when you have to, um, tell the truth, you know, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, convenient, and go forward. And I basically made that case, and the le these left-wingers went ballistic on me because they now – it's a classic left-wing move, right, where they – they want to tell you what your own standards are and then accuse you of falling <laughs> short of them. Right. And it's like, it's like literally like half of what Michael Kinsley did as a pundit. If conservatives were really serious, you know, they would have to be, um, you know, they would have to say that the drinking age starts at, at 20 because you're born when you're nine months, you're born nine months old and all these kinds of things and these argument ad absurdum stuff. But so, like, Jonathan Chait and a lot of these guys want to claim that the never-Trumpers who were fighting Trump for 18 months on principle, while people like Jonathan Chait and Matt Iglesias and a lot of other people were talking about how much better Donald Trump would be than Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and how right. what a reasonable president would be, that somehow they are the more principled opponents of Trump because they want to sort of delegitimize an election – um, and that somehow we've fallen short, we conservatives have fallen fallen short because we are not willing to say the guy wasn't fair, you know, the guy was unfairly elected, he doesn't deserve to be president, and that basically anything short of assassination is worthwhile. And it's such an insane position to take, and it's so weird. Every wild-eyed, glassy-eyed pro-Trump person out there thinks that I am still – constantly berating Donald Trump when I'm not 
Um, and they'll take one criticism out of 10 neutral or complimentary things and see, aha, see, you're still bitter. And meanwhile, all these left-wingers take this position that never Trump was always, it was, was never a real thing because, you know, we're not, you know, putting IEDs in front of his motorcade. It's bizarre. Well, there was also that interesting thing over the, over the past month where, Romney and Trump were in that gavotte about the Secretary of State ship, and the idea that it, wait, it, it, it was what a gavotte, oh, a yeah. dance, yeah, a sort of social dance. That's what I thought you so, said. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm. Uh, they were sort of swanning. They had a lot of effect. They had a lot of effect. <laughs> they had a lot of effect going on. Um, but like the idea that it was humiliating for Romney to have yeah. Trump call him to say. Let's talk about whether you can be Secretary of State, and that it was, it was how dare Romney ruin my sudden respect for how principled he is by by considering the unsolicited proposal or potential proposal of Donald Trump that he consider being Secretary of State. So it's like I'm so disappointed in Mitt Romney, whom I never voted for and whom I gleefully watched being falsely accused of killing people and lying on his taxes and all of that. But for five seconds, I liked him because he was negative to Trump. And now just because as a patriot, he's he's in discussions with the legitimately elected president of the United States about serving his country, he has he has destroyed my sense of his moral fiber. It's just disgusting. Or, or the other version, which is like, hey, look, look how Trump is toying with him. Well, <laughs> no, he, they had dinner and the thing. It's you do the thing, and it would seem to be I don't know, I don't know what they ate, but they had dinner. One guy had said some tough. They said tough things about each other, and well, who was humiliated that at all? I mean, the, the, the strange thing about all of it is that that, that people uh, seem unable to believe that one of the problems that some of us had with Donald Trump in addition to sort of manifest other problems that are more personality driven. But this, the one problem is that he's too liberal. Right. Right. Like that was like, absolutely. And you can see it even in the, in the outrage of the people uh, of the, the sort of the all in kitchen sink uh, uh, tragedy of the Trump uh, election for the, for the left. It's that everything is now terrible. LGBT people are terrified. Why? He's the most pro-gay president from the get-go that we've ever had. Has there been a more... That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. That's like, right. There's no, but it's got to be this kitchen sink craziness where everything is terrible. There will be no flowers in the spring. It's crazy. I mean, it's like there's plenty of stuff you could be upset about. There's plenty of stuff you could be upset on an ideological or partisan level. There's plenty of stuff you can be upset if you're from the right, if you want. I mean... But the idea that it's everything, it's got to be everything. What, Darkness has descended is so insane, so weirdly imbalanced. It's, well, this it's, brings uh, up, so, yeah, okay. this brings up okay. a thing I'm, I'm kind of, I've written a little bit about it and I'm kind of fascinated by is this assumption. And I think it's a human thing more than a strictly left wing thing, but I just, I see it more among the left than on the right. Um, is this assumption that, that sort of goes like this, that which I hate must be ideologically uh, the opposite of me, right? And so you have these people, it's sort of like, you know, the it's part of where you get this idea that Nazism and communism 
are diametrically opposed ideas is because Nazis and communists fought each other. And so people say, oh, they fought each other. They must hate each other and they must be completely different. They're actually really similar. It's like Coke and Pepsi fight each other because they're so similar. It's what Freud called the narcissism of small differences, small differences right? right? And so I grew up, um, you know, where my parents were sort of deeply invested in Nixon's stuff, either emotionally or politically or professionally or um, uh, and uh, I was always fascinated for my entire life about how every sort of liberal I ever knew truly and passionately believed that Richard Nixon was an extreme right winger because they hated him so much. He must be an extreme right winger. You saw this under FDR when I was trying to figure out with FDR why um, his opponents were all called right wingers. And when you actually look at who his opponents were, um, a lot of them were his opponents to his left. But he was one of these central figures in American history where the more you hate, the, the, the more they own the political landscape, the definitions of right and left get defined by the, their opponents, right? And so, like, Father Kaufman was called this right winger, even though he attacked FDR from the left. George W. Bush was constantly being called a crazy right-wing extremist. Um, when, you know, his first legislative act was no child left behind. He expanded Medicare, um, you know, expanded government. He talked about compassionate conservatism. But they hated him so much that they just assumed that he had to be ideologically completely different than them. Trump is – it's going to be very interesting to watch the politics of Trump because he is really a Nixonian moderate in a lot of his assumptions about the role of government. He's actually made some appointments that are well to his right. But the left is not going to be able to calibrate their pitch for a while, and they're going to keep insisting that he's a crazy right-wing extremist even though – He's not. I mean, and on the gay thing, I still, I, you know, I think he thinks his party is a bunch of crazy right wingers. But yeah, he's he not, does. Right? And so, remember during the convention where he had that line in his speech where he said that essentially, I'm paraphrasing, radical Islamic terrorists are never again going to be able to go to a nightclub and murder 50 gay people, and the audience cheered, and he was like visibly taken aback. Yeah, and he says, he thought, yeah, who would, who, yeah, I thought you were says, all. I want, to, I want to congratulate you. I'm, I can't tell you how happy yeah. I am that this audience applauded that as if like it's a standard part of the Republican plank that, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> terrorists get to go shoot up, get to murder all our gays. That, that's, the, <laughs> that's the one pass that we give them. You know, well, he's <laughs> a New Yorker. You know, New Yorkers, that's what they think. No, but I mean, I think in the end, <clears throat> the thing about Trump is that his, uh, he is a, you know, he's a billionaire liberal whose cultural signifiers and the way he got himself elected was to play around with a lot of dog whistles, both to liberal left wing issues like industrial policy and sort of union style protectionism and right wing dog whistles. And so you have all these people in the, you know, in the sort of the, 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 the center or some some variant of the center from right to left who are horrified by him in different ways. And then, yeah, then they assume, like, who's going to hate him more if he gets protectionist stuff through? It's going to be labor unions who don't like him, left-wing labor unions. Like, what happened when he made the carrier deal? The union guy of the carrier plant attacked him. 
right? And then he attacked him back, and there was all this, oh, my God, you know, the president of the United States can't attack an individual union leader. This is terrible. But the impulse was, well, I mean, Trump can't do this. I'm against the carrier deal. But that guy, of you know, at the, at the union, at the carrier plant, should not be against the carrier deal. You know, and it's just that the cultural signifier to him is Trump is bad. And that was also true of Nixon. So Nixon passes all this environmental legislation. Who would have who would have hated Nixon the most in 70, 71, 72? Sort of the nascent environmentalist movement, which was sort of, you know, leftist anti-capitalism. And they were never going to give him credit, right? For creating the EPA. You know? Yeah, Keynesians would never give Nixon credit for him, you know, for basically putting in place the most radical Keynesian program that the country has ever seen in the wage and price controls during the, you know, right. during the, the, the oil shot or, you know, whatever that was. So, uh, yeah, this is a real issue, like, uh, you know, because it's like, you're stealing my issues. <laughs> Don't steal my Those are my issues, not well, your what, issues. That's what we did with Clinton, right? I mean, there were a lot of people, a lot yeah. of Republicans who assumed he was this insane left winger because he was at one point a really dirty hippie. But, um, and... The reality was is that we were pissed at him because he was, you know, he was for the death penalty, yes. and welfare reform, and he was school stealing uniforms. A lot of, yeah. yeah, and he was stealing Republican issues, and it was the narcissism of small differences. Exactly. But you know what you is know. not the narcissism of small differences <laughs> is Casper mattresses. Oh, very much so. I would say. The, Don't you the agree? Opposite, I would say this the is just very big differences between Casper and the mattress industry, which has yeah. forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. So Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015, the Casper mattress, an award-winning mattress that won't disappoint. Mattresses can often cost well over 1500 bucks, but Casper's cost 500 for a twin size, 600 for a twin XL, 750 for a full, 850 for a queen, and 950 for a king. And they're obsessively engineered a team spent thousands of hours developing it. Springy latex, supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. All three ki- three of my kids are sleeping on Casper mattresses right now and are sleeping better than they did before we had them. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they pick it up and refund you everything. Since they understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Best of all, made in America. Now, here's a special offer for GLOP listeners. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash GLOP and using GLOP as your promo code at checkout. We thank Casper Mattresses for sponsoring the GLOP podcast. So, gentlemen, did you do your due diligence before the podcast and come up with a list of the top three movies television shows and books of the year i did not you did Just, not i'm not going to pretend not. bluff i should full disclosure i went to the special report christmas party last night and was recklessly overserved by an irresponsible bartender <laughs> um and so blame I, shifting i walked the dogs before dawn then went back to bed and woke up about 15 minutes before this podcast started okay, so i i did these lists so since neither of you did them should i read mine out and you can react to it or should we just make it up as we go along i'm i'm going to um i'm going to react like the delta house did when they not when they put the slide of flounder on the screen whatever you say okay 
Really? Because I think you're going to like my book list. All right. Okay, go on. Okay, so my book list is, I have is the three top books. One of them, I don't think either of you has read, it's a novel called The Mothers by Britt Bennett, which is about an African-American church just north of San Diego and a reckless 18-year-old girl who is one of the uh, parishioners. And it's really a remarkable novel and something, by the way, that um, that conservatives it has a it has it portrays an abortion and the and the after effects of the abortion that will be very meaningful to to pro-life conservatives the mothers by Britt bennett but the other two i think um are exactly what you would expect me to pick those are that is hillbilly elegy by jd vance and the fractured republic by yuval levin um which are Great books. It's radically different books and very complimentary as well, since Hillbilly Elegy is a memoir about uh, the world of the Trump voter, basically, of the, mm-hmm. of the uh, up from Kentucky uh, working class Americans who populated the post-war factories of the auto industry and related businesses and made good and made a lot of money and then watched their children decline into drug use and, uh, and fecklessness and all sorts of things and Vance's own life journey through this world and then getting out of it by going off to the Marines and then to, to college and to business school and it's really a, a, a stunning uh, piece of writing. And Yuval Levin's book, The Fracture Republic, which is the single best description of the political sclerosis that Trump cut through for good or ill, in which both parties were sort of choked by choked in uh, by um, nostalgia, policy nostalgia, and could not see their way through to a you know a new approach to anything. Um, you could say in some ways that Trump reflected that since the Make America Great Again cue, you know, is basically a reflection of an idea that the past was better than the present or the future. But clearly his shuffling of all issues and shuffling the issue deck um, so that, you know, in a way that seems to us to be insanely incoherent but seemed to make sense to a great many people uh, was an example of how the public had gotten sick of the way politicians were talking about everything and not getting anything done. Right. Wait, so wait, so that was your favorite? Those are my sure. three books. Those are my three, oh, three books. books. I see yeah. three books. Why wow, you really did the work here. Oh, yeah, well, I read, I read the book. Did you like did, anything for fun? I mean, well, any, the mother's is really a wonderful. What else? Well, I liked you know? Harlan Coben's Home, uh-huh. which I think is a really good sort of fun suspense thriller. Okay. Of, that I, okay, that's I what we're looking for. Do you have anything fun? Uh, no. I don't have – here's my here's my situation in life is that whenever I'm going to go see a movie, I choose not to in the theater. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it, and, or I go and I check out and I say, hey, what's playing at the Metrograph or the Film Forum? And I go and see an old movie. Because that's who I am now. I'm like, I, even when I'm back home in my in, in L.A. and I plot myself on the sofa and I'm looking around, I'm just gonna like mindlessly watch something. It's almost always Turner Classic Movies. I realize that is like a horrible cliche for a whole bunch of reasons, but it almost always is. Um, uh, and well, the only as other you know, I know I think... who lives this way is Terry Teachout, the great uh, uh, writer and critic, 
who uh, if you follow him on Twitter, it's really worth doing because he occasionally he and I will be doing the same thing at the same time, <laughs> watching the same movie on Turner Classic. And he he tweets about it rather charmingly. Oh, this is a wonderful old blah, blah, blah. I'm watching it with my wife. And I'm just sort of sitting there just, you know, drinking whatever was in the wine bottle from the night before and watching, you know, the you know Broadway babies of 1938. Uh, I, it's over, I guess I should say. It's over for that me. That is just so sad. That's going to go. It's so sad. But it's, <laughs> do you wear a short sweater when you do this? And like an old moth. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And then I look up and say, who's taking me to the doctor on Thursday? I do that. You know? <laughs> like, are, you watching ice, are you watching Ice Station Zebra and you have like five Mormons around you carrying you around the room? No, it's not quite Howard Hughes style. Okay, but okay. Because like, it sounds uh, lonely there. It, well, it is lonely because, but it's not you know not like I'm surrounded by uh, by by helpmates. That's okay. me. But Film Forum is is uh it, you know I go there and like I saw this great movie, the L'ascenseur de la chauffe. Ah, elevator to the gallows. Ele- elevator to the yeah to the ga- to the yeah to the gallows. The gallows. Yeah. By yeah. The, the French director Louis Malle. Louis real... Malle. One of his early movies. Great, great old like kind of noir movie. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Film Forum then, is a theater in, in just south of Greenwich Village in, in, to, in New York. Yeah, look it up. It's great. And every, I mean, you, you, I go to Film Forum only because I got to get out of the house. But you could, you could do this. You could have Film Forum in your home. It's called Turner Classics. And there's another. I will do another tip. A holiday tip is what we're doing. There is a, uh, a a new streaming service that is like um, that does this. It's like Turner Classics streaming. That's all it is. Um, oh, yeah, what's know, it called? Filmstruck? Is that Filmstruck? Um, um, I'm going to look it up see. right now. I'm looking up I right now. Hold on. Has... Slow down. It's Filmstruck. It's Filmstruck, and it has... And it has uh, yeah, it's Filmstruck. It's called... Uh, John, John. It's called Criterion Collection. John, it's called yeah. Filmstruck. Is it called Filmstruck? It's called God, Filmstruck. yeah. Uh, uh, like... I, I, is it possible to get a stroke from sound? <laughs> if, yes. If you guys say Filmstruck three more times, I'm going to start smelling burnt hair and fall over. Okay, Film, but I will Filmstruck. say this, which is if you like old movies, if you are if you swan, if you swoon to old movies and you want a movie that is both about old movies, reflects the passion that old movies can provide and the emotional resonance of old movies, then you really should see La La Land, which is my top movie of the year. Uh-huh. I, I do want to see that. I which is an absolutely beautiful film. And yeah. you didn't like it? I didn't see it. Oh, okay, don't go see it then. But I have it. You know, I get all the screeners. Okay, but so you know, you really, up, it's but... one of those things that probably should be seen in the theater best. Yeah, but really? okay. Is that ever true? Is that really okay, so don't, true? Okay, so don't watch it. It's fine. People with always me. say that, oh, you have to. You have anyway, to it's really? a beautiful Why? movie. And the movie that it most resembles, by the way, is not, even though it, it sort of seems to evoke a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, sort of LA, sort of stylized LA, is this uh, fantastic French movie currently available on a service called Filmstruck. Is it called, film, called the, uh, Filmstruck? Yes, called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was made oh, in the sure. 60s. French director, it's entirely sung through, and it's this deliriously romantic movie about these two French teenagers who fall in love. One is a working-class guy, and one is a sort of upper-middle-class girl. And it's all about how you know wildly passionate their romance is and how it is inevitably going to crash and burn. And unlike most musicals which always end with the happiest of endings um, umbrellas of Sherberg ends in a very remarkable 
adult, serious way that sort of reflects reality, whereas the movie Did itself, you, it's fantastic. And you liked Umbrellas of Cherbourg? You liked that? I adored Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And I've seen it like four or five times. I've seen it recently as an adult, and it's I think it's pretty amazing. Okay, so Jonah, you are a TV guy, so what is your best TV show of the year? Do you have one? Well, I mean, uh, of new ones, I think it has to be Stranger Things. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, right? I mean, it just that was just... Did you see Stranger Things? Rob? Okay, yeah, I, mean, well, I know. I'm, I See, I just put stuff on mute for a minute. Yes, I, 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 and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, I mean, just very watchable, and the and uh, the other two shows that I think are great. And fresh. The thing about Stranger Things it was fresh. It was fresh. It, it kind of re rethought, reinvigorated, and the you know the horror the horror thriller genre, which I thought was good. They did well. Also, they they did nostalgia because there's so much remake. Nostalgia, ironic, post-ironic nonsense these days, you know, where they're remaking all this stuff. They managed to do that in a way where they realized if you actually have a strong plot, you can you can hang a lot of this sort of homage to 80s, early 90s TV off of a new strong plot in a way that you can't if it's just clearly a redo of X-Files or... Twin Peaks or anything like that. I, I thought yeah. it was really good. Yeah, and it seemed like part like, like part of the DNA of the show was this. So it wasn't just like this thing of like, okay, well, how are we gonna you know put lipstick on this pig? It's more like, oh no, no, this is actually a fresh way to do it. But I it think they're making a big mistake bringing back the same characters for the second season. Yeah, me too. First of all, twelve-year-old kids are awful when they're fourteen-year-old kids for most of the time with <laughs> actors, right? They just, they just, they just they make you uncomfortable, and, and some of them lose their acting ability. Like Carl on Walking Dead was a great child actor, and now I constantly want to see his face get eaten because he just drives me crazy because um, <laughs> he's an annoying teenager. They should do what like American Horror Story does and use this sort of genre and go someplace completely different for the second season. But they're not. They're not again. They're not listening to me. I agree, and I also think that people need to know. That the show on networks that they must be watching currently is a little show called Kevin Can Wait. The uh, the aren't you nice? Brainchild well, I would call of a little show. I would call it a little show. It's a big show. Yeah, it's like number three uh, comedy in America. The number three comedy in America, executive produced by Rob Long, who takes the train from take Manhattan train. to yeah. to Suffolk County to. My baby takes the morning train. Yeah, that's what I do. Uh, it's. I mean, it's not my show. I didn't create it. Um, I'm just kind of there to kind of make the, as it were, make the trains run on time. And um, and and what the term, the term, the industry, the used to be inside industry term, was called showrunner, um, and now it's everybody seems. To, I saw it in the newspaper the other day, which is weird. Um, and that's just the person sort of like the you know running it who's in charge. Um, because the reason you have to do that now and make it make it really explicitly clear. Um, is because there are 70,000 executive producers on every TV show, and it's not clear what they all do. I, I, it made me laugh when I um, saw people freaking out that Donald Trump's going to be an executive producer of, of the, the Apprentice. I mean, he's going to have some, you know, he's going to be able to whatever, shape the message. Like, you know, he's going to be one of those executive producers that bug me where you're just, it's just money out that you know, every episode this, you got to pay. They don't this do anything. drove me absolutely crazy, and I spent like two or three days on Twitter arguing with people saying it doesn't mean anything that someone is you know the the goal of being an executive producer is to not do any work and collect money that's 
you know, the that's one that's of the goal in a lot of professions. Yeah, it's, but right, but that is the specific goal, you know, of, of of television credits. And so, you know, and I kept saying this, and people kept saying, "You don't know what you're talking about." He he wants to control. He will, you know, they'll it'll be emoluments <laughs> clause. I well, I wish. I mean, how can NBC cover him if he's in business with them? I, I like, literally oh, wish NBC's that were the problem. case. It's not his problem. I I can think of like four executive producers right now that I wish were doing something and not just <laughs> collecting a check. Uh, <laughs> but that's just the way it is, you know. Okay, can I make a pitch for another movie? Uh, wait, wait. Uh, okay. Okay. No, we're still talking about. No, no we can talk about movies. You want? No, but I just want to say that. Um, uh, Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship, which is an adaptation of a of a sort of an unfinished Jane Austen sh- novel short story, um, which is just an absolutely glorious movie, and 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 with Kate Beckinsale and maybe the female performance of the year, even though she's probably not going to get noticed for it by the by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. But uh, Whit is a um, happens to be a conservative and a sort of friend of ours. And uh, it is without hesitation that I can say, despite that fact that everybody should see this really remarkably good, funny movie, which is set at the turn of the 19th century and is about a a monstrous, but extremely attractive woman getting her way, no matter what it is she does. Um, And people really, he's really good with those characters. I think. I mean, you know, he's good with all characters, but those especially, those incredibly blunt, uh, difficult women. He, he wrote them in Glass Days of Disco and in a Metropolitan. Yeah. And, and oddly uh, enough, you know, I mean, the woman, Kate Beckinsale, played a very similar character in Last Days of Disco as this kind of very self centered, you know, preppy, yeah. uh, recent college graduate sort of wandering around New York trying to figure out how to best ruin other people's lives and make her own career. And, <laughs> and this, and this lady Susan in love and friendship is pretty much a character consistent with that, but she's even more dazzling in this than she was in last days of disco. So I really think that's a, Wit is a extremely talented guy and he, also a lovely person. He is a lovely person and he's only made, you know, this is like the first, that's true. He's made it, I think, five years, and it is the first really uh, – the other the, the one between The Last Days of Disco and this was a bit problematic, Damsels in Distress. This is really a – just a just a just like a bullseye. Yeah, it's like you and – you, and you know he's uh, like uh, – you know it's a good movie when people who know him like me um, uh, can say unequivocally it's a good movie uh, even the, and not be jealous – you know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm You know what I mean? It's like, like, you can actually, well, what? you know, no, it's, you know, like usually, usually when your friends succeed in show business, you're like, well, it's, it's okay. I mean, there's some problems <laughs> with it. I can see how people like, you're always trying to be equivocate on the praise because God forbid anyone have any moment of success or a value that you don't, you know, can, you can't, you know, nitpick a cavil at, but in this case, in this one case, I have to say, Good for him, you know. Great, it's a great picture, and everyone. You know the great. Uh, you really know the, the great. You were shockingly gruntled. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, I'm you just know, showing a lot of effect right now. I'm just trying to show as much effect as I can. You know, you guys know the the title of the great poem by the you know amazing wit, the Australian British wit Clive James, who wrote a poem entitled "The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered." 
just really looking up, looking yeah, up everything you need to the know. The book of my enemy has been remaindered. It is the ultimate Schadenfreude phrase ever, that is ever awesome. created. It is totally awesome. Hey, uh, very so quickly. Awesome. Yes. Um, this is probably not the smart thing to do with mere seconds left to this podcast. But do you guys have either strong feelings about the actual question or strong feelings about the the intensity of the debate about the question about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Uh, I I don't have strong feelings, but I will say that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Rob? Well, that, that, that is kind of a strong feeling if you're going to say it. I, I feel like Die Hard is a movie that takes place at Christmas. But I'm not okay. sure I would call it a, a, a Christmas movie to me, and, I may, and I'm willing to change the definition of it, but to me it's a movie about Christmas. And okay, Die yeah. Hard is not a movie about Christmas. Die Hard is the, a movie that they added Christmas to because they felt it intensified the emotional reason and the emotional impact on the main character. Right. I want to stay neutral on this because I want to be the moderator at the firing line debate <laughs> on this it. question. Um, and because uh, it's it just always amazes me that particularly this time of year on Twitter, just people get really passionate about it and i just it's a strange question to be passionate about uh, anyway for, by the way th this so i will close my my participation in the podcast by saying that there is a christmas movie that almost no one in america has seen uh and is i don't even think is on turn classic movies but if you go to daily motion which is one of those websites that you know people post movies in the public domain um, there's a movie called The Holly and the Ivy, a uh, British movie from, I think, the early 50s with Ralph Richardson, who plays a small town uh, Episcopalian minister. And his and his it's one of those the family comes to gather uh, for Christmas and all the children have different oh, no. problems going on. And it is. Oh, I hate those. But this is a good one. It is wonderful beyond belief. It's called The Holly and the Ivy. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's one of the most moving and sort of involving stories about, you know, just the ordinary people yeah. getting through the holiday season. And it's just beautiful. That so a, that's a beautiful Christmas carol, too. Oh, yeah. Um, Holly and the Ivy. And they are both full grown. It is. The playing of the merry organs. We singing in the choir. Speaking of which, also, if you have not read. Wait, was I just microaggressed? What? Not at all. Christmas Carol. I feel like I was microaggressed. I just I don't know that. Oh, you really? You changed the subject. Well, maybe that's because you're microdosing I again. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I was. Gonna, you know, I was I just because you, you said Christmas Carol. You said Christmas Carol, and I was going to urge people to go back and read Dickens a Christmas Carol, which I did last around this time last year, and is mate is one of the most perfect pieces of writing that has ever that's been. It is just. You know, breathtaking. Well, and, that's what Rob wrote about for that Christmas book that yeah. we all. Oh, that's right. Of course, you yeah. did for the Christmas it's good, virtues. It's a pretty good. Uh, it's a pretty good old story. That one, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. It's you know, it doesn't really hang together when you think about you know the whole thing all together. But I, uh, and I'm, uh, the, the the end of it is really problematic for me because it's so so. Uh, oh, you mean the one as big as me, the little boy? Oh, what a splendid lad, charming. Lad. <laughs> It just always bugged me that, the, that he was right there and then he eats a turkey and all that stuff. But um, I, I want to know more about Scrooge. I mean, that, to me, that is a Christmas story, right? Because it's it has to take place at Christmas. It's about Christmas. 
Right. Yeah, hello. So, yes. yeah, no, I hear you. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm staying neutral. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, so that brings us to that brings us really to our conclusion here. And uh, All right, wait, I, I got, I have, a, I have a, uh, an alternate take. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It's a Hanukkah movie. <laughs> Pow! Mic drop. Ah, there you go. Mic well, drop. There is, there's a there's a lot of smiting and wrath, which you know is very yeah. Hebrew, right. but. Uh, all right. Yeah. Okay, I'll take it. Um, and guys, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season uh, with Christmas and Hanukkah, Christmas Eve and the first night of Hanukkah on the same night. It's a very uh, moving moment in the Judeo-Christian tradition. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess we'll 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 be back together uh, the first week of the new year. Yeah, it's a contractual. Contractual. Um, <laughs> that's the spirit. That's there what he go. was going for. So we're going to fulfill our 2017 contract. So, uh, right. Fellas, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Keep hope alive. Same to Join the conversation. Thank you.